Hi friends, welcome to Why We Care. I'm your host Tiffen and I started this podcast because I realized that most people know how to reduce their carbon footprints, but few know how to directly help protect nature and biodiversity. So together we'll explore our relationship with the natural world and learn how we can take better care of Mother Earth in our everyday lives. Happy Ocean Month! World Oceans Day is on June 8th, but we're going to be celebrating the beauty and importance of our oceans together throughout the whole month of June. For this special season of the podcast, I've partnered with community media platform Discover Earth to bring you a series of conversations around our relationship with the oceans and why we need to protect them. Once a week, I'll be speaking with scientists, changemakers and non-profit organizations to find out how we can start building a more respectful relationship with our oceans and their inhabitants. So whether you've been here since day one or just joined, thank you so much for tuning in and I hope you'll enjoy. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Charlie Young, a marine biologist and wildlife presenter, also known as Ocean Magpie on social media, where she shares the behind the scenes of her life at sea. Yes, you heard that well, Charlie lives on a boat. So we spoke about what her life is like and how she and her partner renovated their boat in a super sustainable way. I asked her about her most magical wildlife encounter, which she spoke about in such a beautiful and moving way it brought tears to my eyes. She also shared her perspective on human impact on the oceans and gave tips on what you can start doing in your everyday life to both feel more connected with the ocean and also help protect it. Make sure you listen until the end as she also shared career advice for anyone who might be interested in working in ocean conservation or becoming a marine biologist. I really enjoyed chatting with Charlie. I didn't know her before, but our conversation really felt like catching up with a friend. I hope you'll enjoy it as well. Don't forget to follow Charlie on Instagram. I'll leave the link in the show notes and also share this episode with someone around you if you liked it. This would really help us reach even more people. Thanks so much in advance and let's dive in. Thank you for caring and sending you lots of love. Hello, Charlie. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Could you start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So my name's Charlie. I'm a marine scientist, presenter and avid sailor. I'm from Pembrokeshire in Wales. And so I grew up next to the ocean. And so I've always had a, a deep connection to it. Uh, but then for half of my life, I also lived in the Canary Islands. So two places with a, a lot of ocean. And so my entire childhood was shaped by water. And I was also, I grew up drip fed on David Attenborough's documentaries. And so I spent um, my entire childhood being obsessed with wildlife and pleading with my mum and dad to take me to go and see things at zoos. Um, and ultimately this fascination with the natural world is what led me on to pursue a career kind of in conservation and helping wildlife. And so I went to university to begin with to study conservation biology. And then after that, after learning about the plight of the ocean, I realized that that's where I wanted to put my efforts. And so I went on to university to study uh, masks by research. And that's where I specialized in the marine realm. And then since then, I've had the wonderful opportunity to travel the world and work at some brilliant organizations and institutes from Saudi Arabia to Australia, uh, conducting research and ultimately documenting the plight um, of the oceans. And what I'm particularly fascinated in and what I've specialized in is looking at human impacts. So how do we as humans impact the ocean and ultimately what can we do to try and limit that? And so, as I said, for many years, I was working after I graduated uh, in, in the world of research. But alongside that, I always had this passion for communication and in 2019 I decided that I was going to start leveraging social media to try and 
amplify important messages about the ocean. And that started to take off. And over the years, it's grown and grown and grown. Um, and it's now given me the opportunity last year to go full-time freelance and really dedicate my life to, to doing what I'm most passionate about, which is the science aspect, but also communication. I think it's so important these days as a scientist to you know, not only be producing research, but also to be communicating it. Ultimately, you know, a lot of research gets published and it never, ever makes it into the public realm. And so how are we ever supposed to address the problems that we face if there isn't that communication? So last year I took a giant leap and left land behind. I moved on to a boat and I now live full time on the ocean where I'm dedicating my life afloat to documenting wildlife, telling important conservation stories um, and investigating the impacts of humans. Amazing. Well, um, thank you for sharing all of that. It's all super exciting and you've um, introduced a lot of things that I wanted to um, ask about. So we'll <laughs> yeah, dive a bit deeper into some of these things you said later. But one thing that I wanted to start with to kind of start on a positive note was I, I wanted to ask whether you could tell us about your most magical ocean wildlife encounter and what that was like. Absolutely. So this, yeah, this this moment absolutely blew my mind. And so it was it was last year I was on a trip in the Maldives and uh, the Maldives is a fantastic place to see whale sharks. And I'd never seen a whale shark before. And we hadn't had much luck for the first week or so of the trip. Uh, we had gone to the places where you'd normally find them, but unfortunately we hadn't seen a whale shark. And so I was losing hope slowly <laughs> that uh, we might get to see one. And um, we were exploring the South Ariatol. And then anyway, uh, one evening I was actually very uh, close to going to bed. So I got out of all of my kit, was relaxing, and then I just heard over the the the, the comm in the boat, whale shark, whale shark, whale shark, everybody come out and see. And I just couldn't believe it. So I jumped up, I ran outside, and I remember just walking down the steps to the dive platform and just seeing this whale shark feeding so peacefully and quietly in the light beams off the back of the boat. So this is something that's become more um, common in the Maldives, this light pooling method to try and attract whale sharks, which before actually came from fishermen light pooling, trying to bring up all of the smaller zooplankton to the surface and to fish, but ultimately it's been attracting whale sharks since, and now a lot of dive boats are using this method. And so there was this giant shark and it was feeding for a moment and then disappeared. And I thought, oh no, that's 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 it. I'm not gonna get to, to see it in the water. But anyway, um, I got my kit on, we slipped into the water quietly. And then looking into the darkness around the boat, I was just waiting to see this creature reappear. And then out of nowhere, I see this silhouette and this colossal creature five meters long just gracefully swims in and what you see first of all is kind of you know all of its its spot pattern which kind of like makes it almost look like it's traveling through space and time like this starry night sky kind of like gliding in in the darkness and then it just swept past me peacefully came up and, and continued to feed and I was just absolutely entranced you know, sharing the water with, you know, the largest fish in the ocean um, and just seeing how gentle they are and, you know, how beautiful they are. And I spent 
literally hours in the water and I thought oh this is this is wonderful getting to experience one shark then the next thing another shark and another shark and another shark growing you at five sharks are swimming around us and it was just such a humbling experience um to to share the water with them to to see them up close um and to just just kind of be put back in your place as such as a as a human uh to 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 feel tiny um and insignificant uh to them um you know even though they were so big they were so gentle and moving slowly but when they wanted to move oh my goodness could they move and they would just woof, dart out the way mm-hmm. um and it was just it was just truly magical and i think that that is a moment that will always stand out in my mind uh today as just one of the most yeah beautiful experiences i've had underwater Wow, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. That's beautiful. And um, I think you said it in a very poetic way as well. So <laughs> thank you for Thanks. that story. I've had to do that a couple of times, so I've refined okay. oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> You did a very good job at making me and hopefully our listeners as well really feel like we were there in the moment with you. And uh, if people want to actually see, uh, see the moment, um, my friend and good photographer, uh, Felipe Ravina, he he actually captured and immortalized the moment forever. Uh, so there's a photo of me free diving down um, in amongst uh, three sharks uh, oh, wow. that's on my Instagram. So if anyone wants to go see that, they're they're welcome to. Okay, amazing. I will make sure to include a link to that in the in the show notes so people can check it out. <laughs> Thank you. And it's um, yeah, I I do a little bit of a uh, scuba diving as well, and I know exactly what you mean about this um feeling of you cannot really predict what's going to happen and what you're going to see and it's just so much more special I think when it happens and it can sometimes go um on dives and you don't see as many creatures or not the one you were hoping for or even you know outside of the ocean like when you go in nature and you're looking for um some sort of wildlife that you really want to spot you never know whether they're going to be there or not but then the moment they appear it's just so it's like time stops and it's just like the most special thing ever so and yeah i know that feeling i love it <laughs> absolutely it's uh it's always a, a kind of raffle with the ocean as you say you never know what you're going to get and then when you do have that moment where you see something that's either rare to see or that you know is difficult to see it's just nothing compares to that feeling it's like a gift from the ocean Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) love it something else that I wanted to ask going back to what you were saying before is obviously you're witnessing the impact of human activity on the ocean on a daily basis so could you share what the main issues are and what you think needs to be addressed as a priority I guess the the single largest Uh, problem in the oceans right now um, is overfishing and something that I'm experiencing as I'm I'm you know traveling around is I'm seeing just a general lack of fish you know very fish depleted environments Um, and then in general uh, seeing a lot of bycatch so I was actually in Portugal that's where we were renovating the boat which I'll go on to explain to your listeners a bit later about Um, and I was just seeing an excessive amount of of bycatch waste uh, being discarded you know from sharks literally chopped up and and, and left on the beach from eagle rays that got stuck in nets Um, but in general basically what overfishing is doing to to our global ocean is it's it's vacuuming them you know creatures are literally being harvested at a rate that is out of balance with the natural rhythm of the ocean you know it's 
at an industrial scale in the last century, we've just decimated fish populations worldwide. And, you know, not even the high seas are a place that are a refuge. You would think that. And that's something that's been a huge dawning realization for me is, you know, living on the ocean, going to remote places and just, you know, seeing that these 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 places are just as impacted, you know, navigating from the, the south of Portugal to the Canary Islands, the amount of traffic and boats and fishing vessels that I saw on the ocean, you know, hundreds of kilometers out, you know, there, there is no part of the ocean now that isn't being fished intensively. And what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, in sh such a short space of time, we've lost 90% of the large fish in our oceans. And that one third of the fish that is being caught worldwide is going in to produce something called fish meal. And most of that fish meal is going into feeding agriculture on land and oh. fish farms. So what we've got here is just, you know, a huge amount of over -har harvesting at an unsustainable rate that doesn't take into consideration the natural rhythm of the ocean, of the creatures that are being caught. Um, and it isn't slowing down. You know, the demand for fish worldwide is growing. The population of the world is growing. And there are a lot of people around the world that rely on fish as a primary source of protein. And, you know, as we've, since the Industrial Revolution in the last century, as all of the technology that we use to catch these fish has got better and better, we are essentially just too good we're just too good at, at catching fish. Um, but, you know, it's it's a problem for biodiversity, for for the kind of loss of biodiversity, but also it's, it's, a, it's a problem for people. And as I said, a huge proportion of the world relies on fish as a primary source of protein. And what you've got is kind of like this, this double-edged problem where, for, I'll give an example, in West Africa, You've got um, fisheries that are artisanal fisheries. You've got local people that rely on fish as their primary source of protein. They usually use canoes and kind of like they throw nets, very small scale fishing. But at the same time, in the same waters, you've got industrial fleets, mainly Chinese fleets coming in and fishing these waters. Um, and so what you've got here is just, you know, people trying to survive and live off of the ocean, but then these large scale industrial fleets coming in and absolutely decimating the fish that these people rely on. So wiping out the natural biodiversity, but then also wiping out this very important food source for people. So it's not just a problem for, for you know, wildlife, it's a problem for people. And, you know, well, how is this problem persisting? Well, one of the single largest drivers of overfishing are fisheries subsidies. So, you know, as we've got better and better at catching fish um, and better at, you know, we've got better and better boats, you know, that have giant engines, we've got sonar, we've got this, we've got that. What, what we've got happening is a lot of countries subsidizing their fleets to go and fish in waters where it wouldn't be profitable um, otherwise. So, for example, China has the largest offshore fleet in the world and they are being subsidized to go and fish in waters on the other side of the world. It wouldn't be profitable if they weren't subsidized, but if they get, you know, their fuel paid for. And so what we're seeing is it's like the high seas are basically being emptied. Areas with, you know, rich biodiversity are being targeted. It's not just China. Europe is the second largest offshore fleet in the world. 
And so the, the problem is we're just too good at catching fish. We're not listening to scientists. We're overfishing at a rate that is just unsustainable. There's a lot of unregulated and, and unreported fishing, but actually the biggest problem is the legal stuff. It's the legal overfishing. It's all of the legal fishing that we're allowed to do, but that is at a, an unsustainable rate. So this is the, the problem that most plagues the ocean. That's the biggest threat. Mm. Of course, we have the climate crisis, which is like, um, it's like throwing salt on a wound. Um, you know, a lot of the impacts of climate change in the ocean are, you know, being felt now. We, we, you know, could lose coral reefs within the next century, or at least coral reefs won't look the same as they do now. And, you know, they support a wealth of biodiversity as well. So overfishing um, is what I'm seeing a lot of uh, the most on the ocean. Um, but then again, climate change is this, this other huge problem that is knocking on the door. And these two things combined are putting the ocean under astronomical pressure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's super interesting because I feel like we hear so much about plastic pollution and I feel like in a lot of people's mind, mine included until not so long ago, I thought, okay, that's maybe the main issue, or at least it's the one most people are aware of is we're polluting the oceans with plastic. So if I reduce my plastic consumption, then I'm helping the oceans, which I think is obviously a great and needed as well. But then that overfishing issue, I think is so, um, there's so little conversation around it. We're so, yeah, few people know about this, right? Yeah, the, the problem is overfishing isn't a sexy subject. And it's mm -hmm. also quite often something that people just can't connect with. You know, plastic is, is a big problem. Um, and I've actually done a lot of research on plastic, but when we look at immediate threats that are the, are the biggest perpetrators overfishing completely, in my opinion, outweighs the plastic problem. Um, and I think the reason why plastic pollution has maybe hogged the limelight or been the main thing that people talk about is because we all ultimately want to do something. People mm. are heartless, you know, people when they hear about these issues, want to do something about it. And plastic is something that people can connect with. People see plastic on their shelves every single day. You know, they can they can make choices. Mm. And I think in many ways it's just become maybe like an, an easy win for, for, for people and something that does connect with the general public that they can understand and put into context in their minds because the overfishing issue is complex. There are many different factors that uh, contribute to it, that make it such a problem. And so I think that that, that generally is it. It's like, how do people mm -hmm. connect with an emotionless kind of creature? You know, fish don't pull faces or, you know, cry or, you know, connecting with these creatures is, is difficult on an emotional level. And that often is, I think, the, the, the factor that, that plays into it so much is like, empathy people being able to have empathy for an issue and you know frankly I think people just don't know how to connect with a fish and get upset about it you know if the same methods of extraction that are used for fish were used on mammals my god like people would be losing their minds if we were you know running along the savannah with a giant net and just like capturing everything in its path mm -hmm. people can really connect it to mammals um and to terrestrial beings. But when it comes to the ocean, we really seem to lack that, that empathy and connection. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, so interesting. And I feel like there's also a discrimination between species as well, right? Because I remember when I was a kid, for example, seeing those little um, like dolphin safe um, labels on a can of tuna and you're like, oh, yeah, they're protecting, they're, you know, protecting the dolphins or whatever. But then the tuna is also, you know, deserving of, um, it deserves to, you know, live its own life, stay alive and be happy and, and stay in the ocean. But somehow there's such a disconnect. And for some species, we feel huge amounts of empathy with, but then others who are just as valuable and especially also in themselves, but then also, um, as you were saying before, as parts of um, a bigger ecosystem that needs to stay balanced and healthy for the well-being of all these other species, but ultimately for our well-being as well. And I think that's also something that is um, often not really uh, discussed as much, but we need we need the oceans for uh, the air we breathe, right? Because it's, um, is it like half of the world's oxygen that is produced by phytoplankton? So when you start messing up with these ecosystems, I think there's a massive impacts that um, maybe are also more long-term that we don't realize now, but that will happen to us as well, ultimately, right? Yes, completely. Cascading effects. Mm. And so right. Um, we've had, the, I've had this conversation, I remember in lectures many years ago about you know, there being sexy species that really kind of capture people's attention, like elephants mm. and rocks. But as soon as you start talking about, I don't know, like a, a tiny lizard, people just are like, okay, cool, a lizard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and this is this is this is a strategy that a lot of conservation organisations will use: is that they'll use a, a species that people love or that is charismatic to, you know, kind of as that hook as that you know oh save this creature but actually they're using them as like this flagship species to then conserve the 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 environment as a whole or other species that kind of you know share the same uh space so it is a it is a good technique but it it does mean then when you have a focus campaign say like on tuna yeah uh, it just doesn't capture the hearts and minds of people even though these these animals are incredibly important for the balance of an ecosystem um, so yeah, it's a problem. It is a huge problem trying to develop and nurture that empathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that makes me think of is my octopus teacher. I don't know if you saw that documentary, but yeah. I thought that was a really good example of how when you when you learn to when you try to connect with something or someone, a, a little creature, and you try to understand them, then you kind of feel that connection a bit more, and you um, start caring. And I think that film did such a great job at making us uh, making viewers realize that they're actually very different from us but also yeah making us realize that they're you know worthy of being protected absolutely I think my octopus teacher I agree with you was just a fantastic example of storytelling emotive storytelling that Mm. uh kind of really dives into to the intelligence of creatures and how there's so much more to them than we even realize and Funnily enough, I actually uh, posted about this a couple of days on my social media account because I went diving and I saw an octopus. And every time I share moments with octopuses, um, octopi, it's like, oh, it's just the most magical, wonderful feeling. You feel like you're meeting an alien, mm-hmm. you know. We share a common ancestor, you know, between I think five, 500 million, 750 million years ago, we split off. And so they are kind of like, you know, evolutions 
second brain, like another brain developed in a completely different environment to us. You know, they're highly intelligent creatures. And I think if we can begin to understand that there's these intelligent creatures in the ocean, that they're not just this resource to deplete, that they they have a complexity, a mental complexity that we're only just beginning to understand. If we could realize that, I think it would really give us context for who we are and what our place on this planet is. You know, we often see ourselves as a divine miracle placed here and we have this constant pursuit of who are we what are we you know and this drives us to live in a way disconnected from nature almost staring at the stars and and looking for answers but the answers are right here you know look around you at the world look and go and spend time with creatures and you will begin to, to to realize that you are part of nature this is where we came from and you know, we need to live in harmony with it. We need to live in this reciprocal relationship with nature and not see it as this resource to just be, you know, depleted uh, for our use. And uh, so, yeah, any time I spend time with an octopus particularly is just one of those moments where you're just like, wow, this <laughs> is just, you know, this is, this is just a wonderful example of the complexity of nature um, and of the world we're part of. Mm-hmm. Okay, wow. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. <laughs> Something else that I wanted to ask is, obviously, as is the case with a lot of environmental issues, we do really need systemic change to happen. But then in your view, what are three simple things that people can start doing today to lower their impact on biodiversity and specifically on the ocean and um, all the creatures that live in it? And I guess maybe also um, in regards to what you were saying before, maybe um, linked with overfishing as well. Yes. So, you know, overfishing, again, is one of those uh, difficult things to kind of to, to, to think of a way to like how can I have an how can I have an impact on you know something that is kind of out of my control you know the general public are not the ones setting all of the quotas or the the rules about what we can or can't fish you know and then they're not the fishermen going out there and using these unsustainable practices to catch these fish so what we have to essentially do is kind of you know look at our own consumption so I think in general if you can reduce the amount of fish that you eat that is fantastic because ultimately the demand for fish is growing we're at a point where you know as i said we've lost 90 percent of the large fish in our oceans you know we even the sustainable species that are, are, are marked like for example the the mcs sustainable um certification there have been you know fish that have been said yeah, yeah yeah you can you can eat cod for example and now we're looking at four out of five cod species in and around UK waters actually um, being overfished, um, you know, at risk of stock collapse. You know, so I think in general, reducing your fish consumption is really important. But if you want to continue eating fish, it's about looking at getting it from responsible sources. So in the UK, for example, there are a lot of um, small scale fishermen in places like Brixham and in the southwest. that are sustainable small-scale fishermen and so buying from a fishmonger you know fishmongers that can tell you exactly where that fish has come from is far better than going to your supermarket and buying fish off of the shelf there so that's one thing that I think is really important Mm. but also you know as you said systemic change 
is integral and actually the biggest perpetrators and the biggest fuel of overfishing is fishery subsidies. Now, changing your personal habits isn't necessarily going to affect subsidies, but a way that you could contribute to trying to, to do that is by communicating the issue. So we all have social media at our fingertips, you know, and we all have our own circle of friends and family that, you know, we can speak to and educate. And, you know, perfect example is my partner um, recently was back home visiting family and he was telling them all about the overfishing issue. And a lot of them um, didn't realize certain facts and it was very enlightening for them. And I think this is so important because the more people that know about this problem, the more people that know the specifics about this problem and the more people shouting about it, the more pressure that we can build collectively, you know, on this issue. Like building a conversation is so important because out of conversation comes action. So I think that please, please, please speak up for the ocean and on these issues in your personal communities, in your family and friends like groups, and just using the channels that you can. You don't have to be an environmentalist to talk about these things. So that would be another thing that I would say. And then obviously the climate crisis is huge and we are facing you know, a climate emergency and we all need to be looking at our, you know, our own carbon footprint. So moving to a plant-based diet is, is great um, or reducing your meat consumption is fantastic. Um, but also some really cool things that I've learned about in recent years is like green banking and pensions. Like who are you banking with? You know, um, there are some banks that are using your money to fuel really um, unsustainable projects or fossil fuel giants. So I bank with Triodos Bank. Um, there are a couple of other people out there too that only use the money to um, fund sustainable projects. So that's a really important thing. You know, that's just sleeping. That's money that is sleeping in the bank that unbeknown to most people is going into unsustainable things so that i would say is really important and ultimately if we can reduce um you know carbon emissions if we can try to tackle the climate emergency that will also vastly help the ocean and also help relieve the pressure the added pressure that climate change is 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 putting on an already depleted ocean so those are my top tips uh, there are loads of others but I wanted to move away maybe from some of the classic ones that you hear and, and offer maybe some other other solutions. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you so much. I love that. I love the last one because I used to work with Make My Money Matter. So <laughs> we did a lot of work around raising awareness of the investments that uh, your pension and bank uh, do on your behalf. And most people don't realize that it's um, often things that are not aligned with your values. So I'm super happy to hear, hear you mention it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've actually heard of them. So uh, you, you were doing a good job then getting the message out. So. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great to hear. And yes, I will include um, links to everything you mentioned and kind of a summary of um, all of this in the show notes as well for listeners who want to check all of these out. And then what's your advice for listeners who want to feel connected with and help the ocean, but don't live near it? Yeah, so this, I think, is the million dollar question. And one of the biggest problems that we face when it comes to the ocean and protecting it is how do we inspire people that are you know, don't spend time in the ocean, don't live near it, um, and maybe haven't experienced it. You know, before we we started recording, we were talking about how connection and experience is such an important part of 
of building empathy for for causes and, and, and just in general for inspiring people to take action. Mm. So what I think is, you know, really important is, is just connecting to water in general. So if you look at the UK, for example, there are like 1,500 river systems, you know, comprising of over 200,000 kilometers of water courses. So even if you don't live by the ocean, you probably do live pretty close to a, a body of water. And during the pandemic, for example, I couldn't get to the ocean. But what I did is I, I went and spent a lot of time at my local river and swimming. And ultimately, rivers lead to the ocean. And they're one of the major pathways for plastic entering the ocean. So if you can connect with your local river and, you know, get involved maybe in trying to, to clean it up to, to, you know, stopping excessive amounts of raw sewage being dumped into it, you know, to stop plastic from entering into it. Um, and then going and spending time immersed in water in general, getting the beneficial uh, kind of hit of just time spent in in this element. I think that is probably the best way for, for people to start connecting with the ocean, because even though it's different, freshwater habitats are different. Ultimately, I think connection to water, you know, is universal. You know, any time spent in water you know, you've, you are ultimately connected to the ocean in that way. So I think that, you know, even if you don't live by the ocean, there are a lot of things that are impacting river systems too that ultimately do impact the ocean that you can do a lot about. Um, and the other thing I would say is that like overfishing, for example, you don't need to live by the ocean to, to have an impact. You know, the things that I just said about my tips all of that has an impact too. Quite often impact isn't, you know, directly being in or on the water. Um, quite often these things are completely unrelated and you'd think, wow, what? My pension is impacting the ocean in a negative way. So I think that it's about us thinking more broadly and not thinking ourselves as being useless because we're not, you know, living within five minutes of the coast and surfing every day. That doesn't make us useless and any less, in my opinion, connected or, or advocates for the ocean. We can all be advocates. Even if you live in the middle of a city, you can still be as good an ocean advocate as somebody that, say, lives on a boat like me. Mm -hmm. Okay, super cool. That's super um, great to hear. And I think very <laughs> motivating and uh, yeah, lots of very practical tips to put into action. So thank you for that. And then for our listeners who do actually live near the ocean, is there anything specific they can do beyond the kind of obvious um, thing like uh, picking up any trash they find? Completely. So um, obviously picking up plastic off the beach is great if you can stop plastic from getting into the ocean to begin with. You know, that's a wonderful thing. But one of the big problems that we have with the ocean is it's, you know, really hard to study and we're very data deficient. So one thing in particular that people can get involved in around the UK and I think is an extremely worthwhile pursuit is with citizen science projects where you help collect data. Now, there are so many in the UK, actually, a lot of people don't realise. And one that I'm a huge fan of and uh, it's for a habitat that I love immensely. So Project Seagrass, they have a citizen science um, app um, called Seagrass Spotter. And essentially what this app allows you to do is to take a photo, um, ID the species and upload it to their international database. And this is incredibly important data because essentially when we're looking at 
seagrass habitats, for example, you know, one of the biggest problems is that we don't know the extent of seagrass that we have. And there are many places where we, we don't have data. So anytime that you see or think you see uh, a piece of seagrass, you can snap a photo, you can upload that information. And this can go a long way to helping us understand and take the next steps for, for conserving this, this habitat. So I would say to people, have a look at the different citizen science projects that you can get involved in. I mean, honestly, there is, in my opinion, nothing more rewarding than going and spending a day with friends, having fun looking at wildlife or going to see seagrass. And then knowing that you've had a great day at the beach or at the coast, and then that information that you've collected is going on to, to help conservation efforts. I mean, it's it's a win win and hopefully have a lovely coffee and cake at the end of it. You know, <laughs> it's a wonderful social <laughs> uh, a social uh, event and also like a really feel good thing. So there is a lot of citizen science projects you can get involved in and you don't need any qualifications. Like you just need to be someone that turns up, wants to help. Mm -hmm. OK, noted. Thank you. That's super helpful. <laughs> <laughs> and so then can you tell us about your life on a boat how that came to be and what that is like and I know you're on the boat now so <laughs> super exciting yes, and we'd love to hear <laughs> strange in the background it's uh it's because I'm on a boat <laughs> uh, so you know as a marine biologist one of the the saddest parts of the or the saddest realities of our job is that you know it's it's always trying to to we're always trying to find time to spend on the ocean and access to the ocean, you know, it's difficult. You need a boat or you, you know, only get fleeting moments in time to be able to go out and, and explore and go on field work. Um, and I'm a big fan of field work. I love being in the ocean. And um, when I uh, finished my degree, my master's, I actually went and spent a lot of time um, in Saudi Arabia, where I was working um, as a research assistant at the Reef Ecology Lab. And it was there that I got to go on a lot of scientific uh, expeditions for weeks on end to remote reefs to collect data on bleaching, fish biomass. And I remember on all of these trips just thinking, my word, this is just the most magical thing, living on the ocean or being on the ocean and getting to, to dive into it every single day. And I think it is most marine biologists, biologists dream to do that full time. And so it always been in the back of my head, but the logistics of living on a boat it is difficult. And um, before I did it, I thought it was something that was completely out of my, my reach, that it was an expensive pursuit that I would need to you know, probably do when I'm retired because boats cost a fortune. But um, I last year was actually in the Canary Islands and um, I was very lucky to meet a wonderful man who happened to be a sailor. <laughs> and um, essentially he introduced me to to a different side of, of living on the ocean. So there is this one side where it's you buy extremely large and very um, fancy boats and it does cost you a fortune. But he was actually living on a, a much smaller boat. And um, I got the experience of actually living um, simply on the ocean. And, um, you know, it's reali I realized it was much more accessible than I thought. So that presented the opportunity. Um, I loved it. Of course, when you first move onto a boat, it's always that, you know, sailboat. Am I going to like it? it? You know, you're constantly moving. Um, <laughs> But thankfully, I took to it and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but both of us have, you know, a lot of ambitions and me personally in my career, you know, what I really want to do is to explore the world's oceans in a sustainable way, in a low impact way, which a sailboat offers. But also I want to have room to do science and to have film crews come on board and people to join us on our journey. And this small boat just wasn't big enough. It wasn't big enough to do really what we want to do. And so the opportunity presented itself. Uh, We were offered by a friend uh, the chance to buy a very wrecked boat. And I'm I'm not joking. It literally had been wrecked on the beach for seven years. Um, And he said, do you want to take off on this boat renovation? And for some crazy reason, we decided to. (laughs) So um, up until a month ago, um, we were building, rebuilding this boat, which is a 1970s wooden Warham catamaran, which has tripled our space. Wow. And... um, We are now in the Canary Islands after finishing that renovation. We sailed, our maiden voyage was from the south of Portugal to Canary Islands. Um, And we've begun this journey, essentially. And this journey for me essentially is, as I said, to live on the ocean full time, to immerse myself in it and connect with it in a way that I just couldn't if I stayed on land. And to use my skills as a scientist and communicator Uh, to explore and to go to far distant places with this boat is highly capable it's a very shallow draft it can go deep ocean it can go you know very shallow mangrove habitat It's very versatile and the space that it affords us um, and the opportunity it affords us is this ability to go where people can't and the fact that it's a sailboat as well means that it's incredibly low impact you know I'm living now in a way that I couldn't live on land. On land, you know, I was uh, running around like a lunatic, you know, driving here and there, like, you know, uh, obviously living in a house which is rigged up to, you know, the national grid, like, you know, constantly, you know, I I was as a normal person living, but I quite often felt like my, my, life didn't reflect my values whereas living on a boat we have our own solar system we're highly self-sufficient we use the wind and the waves to move you know I'm finally able to live a life with the level of impact that I feel much more comfortable with um and getting to see it and explore it in a way that I never would have before so it felt like that natural that natural transition from you know living on land but wanting to spend more time on the ocean and get to explore it and research it you know more and do that full time and so this is the perfect way to do it is to to live on it um and this is obviously the most low impact way of doing it mm-hmm. wow that sounds so dreamy i feel like <laughs> I feel like we could do an entire episode just on that because I have so many follow-up questions I want to ask. Oh, maybe we'll do one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, because I'm also conscious of time, so I, I won't ask any. But it does sound dreamy, and I'm um, super happy for you that that somehow came to life, and you seem very happy. So that's um, great to see. <laughs> but then, because I also wanted to ask um, about your career as a marine biologist, and maybe if you could share. What is the achievement or moment you're most proud of? And then also what you want your legacy to be? And I know these are quite big questions, so (laughs) sorry about that. (laughs) But um, yeah, feel free to share as little or as much as you want. (laughs) So yeah, just, I guess I've I've explained a little bit about my background and where I came from and how how I got here, but just, I guess, a whistle stop explanation for anyone else that's like, wow, God, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I started and said at university, I got the, you know, the qualifications that I needed to, to be able to, to go into research. And I, I went and got as much experience as I possibly could and worked at lots of, you know, internationally recognized uh, organizations and got that practical experience actually working as a scientist um, and conducting research. So, you know, that's giving me the skills that I need to be able to do independent studies. Um, so, you know, you, if you want to be a scientist, generally the way to go is through university into nowadays, it's getting crazier and crazier, more competitive, you know, having a bachelor's, a master's um, is like kind of baseline of, of what you need for the, for that world. Um, and I guess the one of the most useful things that's helped me kind of like progress through my career has been just being bold, being bold and uh, connecting, networking. Networking is so underrated. Um, you know, if there's someone that you idolize and that you think is fantastic or you love their research or you really love what they're doing, reach out to them. Quite often you'd be surprised at how reciprocal people are. Um, and that's what I did is I quite often reached out to people and I was like, I want to come and do research with you. And I was just bold about it. And that opened doors. So that really opened doors for me as a, as a scientist. It got me into some fantastic, you know, positions, Saudi Arabia being one. Um, it also got me into um, going on an expedition with Nat Geo photographers and as lead plastic scientist to Indonesia, you know, just by networking and being, you know, connecting with people you'd be surprised at the doors that it opens and then obviously you know I've moved into communication as well this kind of like you know mix of my two passions mm. and the way I did that is just using my own platforms you know social media now is I'm seeing more and more being used I mean it's it's saturated but when I started it was still kind of you know, not necessarily the, the the thing to do, but that doesn't mean that it's still not a worthy pursuit. You know, your social media, if you want to get into communication, is your platform. This is your portfolio to say, this is what I can do. And you can show people. And obviously, if you grow a following and people like what you're doing, well, that's, you know, kind of proof of the pudding of your skill. So anyone that wants to get into to conservation communication or to move into that world, use your platform. But don't follow what everyone else is doing. Don't just copy and paste off of Google. Think creatively. Think about what you can produce that's not someone else isn't producing. Your voice is unique to you and no one else can talk about you. You can talk about you and the things that you do. And that's one of the ways that I think you really kind of can carve your own path independently um, on social media and into communication. And then the whole moving on to a boat, well, there was a lot of luck in that. You know, I couldn't do this without my partner, Alexis. He was already a well-established sailor and he had a boat, which I could move on to and gave me the opportunity to learn how to sail and to, to live and experience this life with the, you know, the comfort of all of his skills and knowledge. Um, and, you know, the but the, this boat, this boat that we've just renovated, again, was like a lot of luck that, you know, we're, we're not made of money. And quite often, if you work in conservation, you're not made of money. But we were able to buy this boat in a, you know, for, for very good money, very cheap money than we would have if it was just already done up. And the way we built it is very much in a low impact way. 
You know, this boat is built with an electricity pole as the mast. It's um, boom and gaff are branches from the forest. We've used recycled repurposed materials, secondhand stuff, stuff that people's given, given to us. We've built this boat in a way that makes quite a lot of classic sailors go, oh my God, like people walk past our boat sometimes just like staring, <laughs> like what is this? And so we're really trying to change this perception of what sailing is and our boat is kind of like an ode to a bygone era of sailing of like the ancient days of where boats were made of wood. And this, these types of boats are like the Polynesian, uh, first Polynesian explorer boats that they use to navigate throughout those archipelagos. So it's, you know, it's, and there are ways you just have to be creative. So with everything I've ever done, I've always just tried to think outside of the box and to be one step ahead and to just go for it. Like, be bold and go for it. Um, and, oh, you what was the other thing you asked me? See, I've been rambling <laughs> now for like 10 minutes. What was the last thing you wanted me to, to share? No, but, uh, yeah, first of all, I love that. Thank you for sharing it. I think it's all very um, inspiring. And it, it's inspiring and practical at the same time. So I think that's really great advice. Uh, but then, yeah, the other part of the question was, what do you want your legacy to be? Yes. What do I want my legacy to be? Oh, and then also what is my my um, biggest achievement? Um, so I guess my legacy is what do I, I, I just want to be on my deathbed and to know that I did everything that I could to contribute to the biggest challenges that the, the ocean faces. You know, we, none of us can solve these issues alone. And I just want to be part of that community that that did something about it. You know, I want to be able to to sit there with no regrets and to be like damn I, I fought hard for that and I did what I could what was within my you know my 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 capacity and so I would like to say that uh, by the time I'm an old granny that we've got the overfishing issue under control you know and that I've played a very small part of it you know that that ultimately would be something that I would love to to be able to say to be to be my legacy is to just have contributed in what way I can, and um, one way of contributing is obviously research, and so that's my biggest uh, achievement today. So last year, after um, a lot of hard work, um, my paper got published. So um, the paper that I published essentially was answering one of the biggest questions that we have surrounding plastic and where it goes once it enters the ocean, and. Uh, Basically, when you look at all of the information out there on plastic entering the ocean, we can see that an astronomical amount of it is being pumped. About 15 million tons of plastic yearly is entering the ocean, but only 2% of it can be accounted for floating. So where is this other 98% of plastic? You know, this has been like quite a disturbing question that's been just kind of floating around we have no idea mm -hmm. and so what me and my fellow co-authors co did is that we took all of the published literature out there and we said okay well what does the published literature on plastic and marine sediments say and we collated all this information we did a metadata analysis and some jazzy uh, stats and what we found essentially is that Marine sediments are the ultimate sink of plastic in the ocean. So when plastic enters, it's obviously buoyant. It goes through this process of being weathered by the sun and eventually sinks mm. and it's amassing in marine sediments. So we together helped to answer that fundamental question of where does plastic go ultimately? What is the ultimate sink? And for me, that was just 
such a wonderful moment because I tried for a very long time to get published, to, to do research and get published. It's, it's, it's difficult. A lot of work goes into it. It's a long process. Um, and also to have helped answer an extremely important question about a very, you know, dangerous pollutant in the ocean. It was, you know, a wonderful moment for me to feel like I've, I've contributed and um, also for all that hard work to to finally, uh, you know, have gone gone into that. So, yeah, that today is probably my biggest achievement um, that I'm proud, most proud of. Okay, amazing. And congratulations. That's very cool. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then last question, where do you find hope? This is a very poignant question because I think more than ever now we're all dealing with eco-anxiety and I'm, you know, exactly the same. Having worked in this field for so many years and just even in my lifetime, you know, I'm 31 and I remember, you know, when I was a kid just watching all of these nature documentaries and being like, wow, like, oh my God, the world is incredible. And then as you grow up, you learn more and more of how, you know, it's being um, sort of impacted. Um, and, you know, that's like a really depressing thought and we're being bombarded daily with really depressing messages. But when um, when I think of like how I stay hopeful, there's a quote that I think really sums that up. And this is um, from the founder of Patagonia. And he said that the cure for depression is action. And I ultimately think that that is what keeps me hopeful is just by taking whatever action I can every single day, whether that's in my work or my personal life, to have a positive impact on the planet or to to make a difference. And I think if you're feeling extremely like low about something, doing something about it is the best thing possible. And if we're all doing that, if we're all taking what action we can, something will come of it. You know, even if we do still continue to lose drastic amounts of biodiversity and that we do see that we're not able to limit um, you know global carbon emissions and temperature rises to you know the 1.5 degrees we will achieve something but if no one takes any action we won't get there at all so it's just about I think sometimes swallowing the really horrible negative facts and being like well I'm doing something about it and I'm just just going to do whatever I can because it just does it makes you feel better so that's what makes me feel better on a daily basis is is taking action it's kind of like my balm uh, for all of the the eco anxiety that I feel so that's what I would say to people is get out there do what you can no matter how big or small you know just please stand up for the ocean and do what you can Mm-hmm. okay amazing thank you for sharing again I think that's very helpful and easy to remember the cure the cure for depression is action great perfect well I think that's it for me thank you so much Shadi that was super interesting and inspiring and I think you shared a lot of really practical advice for our listeners but then also a lot of the you really I think um, managed to convey a lot of the magic of your work and it's really contagious to see you speak about it so so beautifully so thank you so much for that I really enjoyed it thank you so much for having me on Thank you, listeners. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation. Isn't Charlie amazing? <laughs> I really like how poetically she talks about her life at sea and also um, the importance of ocean conservation. If you can, please don't forget to share the episode around you so we can get even more people to join the movement. A big thank you as well to Discover Earth for partnering with Why We Care and helping raise awareness of the importance of ocean conservation. You can find me on Instagram at Why We Care Podcast if you'd like to share your thoughts. Um, it's always super lovely to hear from you, so please don't hesitate to do that. Thank you for caring and see you next week. Lots of love.